Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. Pododermatitis can be a very frustrating syndrome to deal with. There are lots of reasons that pododermatitis can happen, and often it's multifactorial, meaning that there's more than one reason that that particular dog is exhibiting pododermatitis. What are the things I want you to be thinking of, and how do we really work up these cases, especially if they are due to some underlying allergy? So remember, pododermatitis, pod being medical term for like a foot, and then dermatitis being inflammation of the skin. So it's a broad term, and many things can cause pododermatitis. You can get anything from technically just some erythema and inflammation on the paw would be pododermatitis. But traditionally, what we're going to focus on and what people think of when they say I have a difficult pododermatitis case is interdigital frunculosis. In commonly, this is called interdigital cysts, but there is a bit of a movement to go to interdigital frunculosis because most of the time they're not truly cystic lesions. There's a lot of inflammation that's occurring around the follicle. And we also know that the, these lesions tend to rupture open, which makes it really frustrating for owners because then you have an open wound, they can get drainage, blood, serosanguinous discharge all over their house or furniture, which is obviously not fun to deal with. And these pets can be very, very uncomfortable, especially if they have not gotten to the point of rupturing yet. Though rupturing is a nuisance and a mess, it relieves that pressure. So when they're really big, almost like an inflated balloon, and they haven't ruptured yet, that can cause pets to limp and be really uncomfortable. So the first step we want to think about in these cases is why is it happening? So again, they are often multifactorial. We're going to start obviously with cytology, and this can be tricky if they haven't ruptured yet. Of course, you can get cytology of the surface of the skin, but you may also have to aspirate some fluid out if they have not gotten to the point of actually rupturing yet. You want to see, because often these are really inflammatory, lots of neutrophils. They're often pyogranulomatous, pyo mean neutrophil, granulomatous meaning macrophages. So you will see neutrophils and macrophages throughout the the cytology slide when you're reading it. But then we often, we also want to look for what type of infections there. Often there are cocci, but there can be rods too. Of course, you couldn't rule out malassezia being present as well. And, and then we have to start really looking at the distribution and thinking about why it is there. So of course we want to do cytology, but just like pyoderma, there's always a reason it's there. So if you had one focal lesion, of course, you could think of something like a foreign body. Not every interdigital frunculosis or pododermatitis is due to allergies. If you had a young hunting dog who's just got a focal lesion on one paw and let's say there's a draining tract, of course, it would be reasonable to consider that they could have something like a grass on foxtail that lodged into that area. So that's where we want to go to our basic history. Does this pet have other signs of allergies? Are they a chronic pollicker? Do they get episodes of otitis? Has it never had a history of any dermatologic disease before? And all of a sudden it gets an acute unilateral, you know, focal infection or frunculosis. 
then I would be starting to think, do we sedate the dog? Do we surgically explore this area to see if there is a foreign body? Because that would be a more typical presentation. Then you go back to some of the basic things. Do, does this a young dog that's developing swollen paws or an old dog developing swollen paws? Do we scrape or do a trichogram? Demetacosis is another um, problem that can cause frunculosis, inflammation um, of the paws. And so especially if they're not on an isoxazoline or even if they are and you suspect it, I would be skin scraping or plucking hairs to see if there's a possibility that something like demetacosis is present and causing issues. Of course, you can get other things like deep fungal infections, um, other things that are not as common, but let's focus on the more common things that can cause this. You've ruled out the simple things like demetacosis. We really do feel like this could be a dog that has an underlying allergy. And I would say for multifactorial, the things I see more commonly cause recurrent interdigital frunculosis. Let's say that's not unilateral, it's bilateral or affecting numerous paws, or this pet dog has a history of it, is an underlying allergy of some sort. And often anatomy plays a role too. So if you have a certain breed, let's say an English bulldog, they're very common to get interdigital frunculosis. Of course, just based on their anatomy being abnormal compared to a normal dog, they can weight bear differently. So the way they weight bear on their paws can cause issues and cause interdigital frunculosis. If they're overweight, having that extra body weight that goes on the paws can also lead to interdigital frunculosis. And then of course, some sort of underlying allergy. So we want to rule out things like a food allergy because we can see food allergy play a role. And of course, we get recurrent um, issues with atopic dermatitis as well. So if we suspect that this is a case that is not a foreign body, is not demetacosis, and really is based on the history, distribution, and your rule outs related to some form of allergy, of course, we're going to start with that diagnostic workup. So when it's right for that owner, if the history makes sense, potentially doing a diet trial appropriately, but how are we going to get this acute issue under control? So one of the best things we can do is try to, if we can, tissue culture these pets. So in a perfect world, if we can sedate the pet, because often they're very uncomfortable, and then take biopsy punches in a sterile matter, you'd biopsy the tissue, you'd sterilely prep the surface of the skin. And when I get a tissue culture, that's one of the only times as a dermatologist, I actually sterilely prep the skin because I'm trying to get that more deep tissue. So I sterilely prep the skin, get a biopsy punch, and then I put it in a sterile container with a few drops of saline and send it in for a macerated tissue culture. So I'll actually take that deeper tissue and they'll crush it up and they'll culture that so we can see if there is a deep bacteria present, you know, ideally aerobic and anaerobic because we can get some weird anaerobic bacteria that may not pop up on our normal aerobic culture. If that is not financially feasible for the owner, because clearly sedation, getting a biopsy punch and sending that in is not inexpensive. If you have a ruptured follicle, you could try your best to get a culture swab deep into that tissue and send that out. Of course, there can be some limitations, like you may get some of the superficial skin, which may not match what is truly causing the deep infection, but we have to work with whatever the owner is able to do. You can empirically treat these guys if they haven't been on 
oral antibiotics. Of course, you could use something like a cephalosporin or clindamycin, some of those first tier antibiotics. But ideally, if we can, because they do tend to be recurrent, they often need to be on longer courses of antibiotics just based on the nature of the deep pyoderma, a culture would be ideal. And they have to sometimes be on antibiotics for an extended amount of time, you know, at least four weeks maybe longer, depending on how well they respond. Traditionally with deep pyoderma, we say things like eight to 12 weeks, but a lot of times I find if I control the inflammation appropriately, which we're going to talk about, they resolve fairly quickly, but I always recheck them before I decide if they're able to actually come off of the antibiotics, but I want the appropriate antibiotic. I want them to stay consistent with it then we have to control the inflammation. Now, some of these dogs come in very uncomfortable and painful. So sometimes they'll be referred to us and they will be on NSAIDs, which may help a little bit with the pain, but it doesn't tend to do a lot to help that tremendous amount of swelling and inflammation. So if it's not contraindicated, very similar to if we treat a really swollen edematous otitis case, Ideally, put them on steroids. You want to put them on anti-inflammatory doses of steroids just to control that initial inflammation, and that can make them feel a lot better pretty quickly. So it's not uncommon to get them on appropriate antibiotics and put them on some steroids, recheck them. Then we have to decide, you know, what is necessary for this pet moving forward. So for some of these pets, I can manage them with, say, immunotherapy or Apoquil most of the year, but I've had some cases where we just know spring, they always pop up with these interdigital fruncles, and so we'll preemptively, as soon as there's any sign of it, either use a steroid to control that, um, you know, or have them get aggressive with things like topical therapy if there is a really heavy bacterial component. But I have had some where we just know one or two months of the year, they may have to go on a low-dose steroid. They tolerate it well. They don't have any contraindications to that. But you do get some difficult cases that it just seems like no matter what you do, they are predisposed to develop it. And we see some breeds that are really predisposed to interdigital furuncles, English Bulldogs. I see a lot of Pitbull Terriers, some Labrador Retrievers. And no matter what you do, you work them up, you try to control them the best you can. They just always seem to break out with issues unless they're on steroids. Many of those cases do incredibly well with cyclosporin. So do not forget that as an option, since it's a bit more of a broad anti-inflammatory, it can really help to control them long-term. So five to 10 mg per kg daily, just depending on what that pet needs. I usually start around five mg per kg, see how they tolerate it, because we do know gastrointestinal upset can happen with that drug. And then kind of see, do we need to stay on it or is it something that we can eventually come away from? You can use the capsules um, of Atopica. If they tolerate that well and seem to respond, you could try to switch to modified cyclosporin. Many dogs will do well with that, but we do know there are occasional dogs that do not respond quite as well to the generic modified cyclosporin. There is also the liquid cyclovan, so that has been back order at least as of this recording in January of 2024, but cyclovans is a liquid non-flavored option that hopefully will be back available um, sometime this year. 
And then if they do tolerate it well, the five megs per kg, but we do feel like we need more, I'll increase them. There is also the trick that you can try to half the dose. So like two and a half to three megs per kg of cyclosporin and do a dose of ketoconazole with it because they metabolize in the same area of the liver. I have utilized that, especially in some of my cases that struggle with recurrent malassezia. It can work really well. Of course, when we start to change the metabolism of a drug, every dog is different. So in some cases, I don't find it to work as well, but I've certainly had successful cases with it. And then again, you want to work on the primary cause. Allergy workup, I've had some that I have to have on cyclosporin chronically. And then once we allergy test them and put them on immunotherapy, they do really well. I have some that just have to stay on cyclosporin. Working for things like weight control can be really important. Um, and then if there's any sort of anatomical abnormalities that need to be adjusted, say if they have elbow dysplasia or anything like that. So they can be really frustrating cases, but they can be really successfully managed cases too. You'd have to have an honest conversation with the owner that there's multifactorial reasons that this can happen. Recurrent infections can occur. We definitely have to be proactive. We have to be diligent, um, and have them really commit to working these cases up. But if you take your time, really get used to managing them, it is incredible how well they can do long-term.